You're listening to Chameleon Church. Biblical antidotes for the modern man. With your host, Alan Aguirre. A Faceless Gen production. Lenny's our senior pastor, if you don't know. He's uh, still in California. They're coming back tomorrow evening. They had the, the birth of their first grandchild a couple weeks ago. So they're a little bit excited about it. Just a little bit. We don't know if Linda's ever coming back. Lenny thought we should be in Zechariah. So we're going to start with the series. He sets it up and then leaves, and then I have to try to figure this one out. Zechariah, the name Zechariah means Yahweh has remembered. And this really is going to really fit into to at least the first half of that book. The first half is addressing Israel at the time, and the second half is apocalyptic writings, as we'll see. But as Haggai encouraged the returned Jewish exiles to rebuild the temple, Zechariah encouraged them to repent and renew their covenant with God. Such spiritual renewal would be necessary for the people to be ready to worship God once the temple was rebuilt, the second temple. He accused them of doing the very things their ancestors had done before the exile, which was what caused the first temple on the ninth of Av to be destroyed and then sent to Babylon. How many know that why they were sent to Babylon, in exile in Babylon? Okay, why, why were they sent to Babylon? Right. They wouldn't observe or heed the Sabbath year. That's why Daniel knew when they would be released. Because ten Sabbath years that they didn't do it. And so he goes, I'm going to get my ten Sabbath years by sending you to Babylon for seventy. I'm going to get my Sabbath years out of you one way or another. You're not doing it voluntarily. You're not being obedient you're not obeying the instruction of the Sabbath year, which is coming up this spring. I'm going to have Babylon take you over, and you're going to go and be in exile there for 70 years. That's why Daniel knew when they would be leaving. A couple other things. While Babylon was coming after them and, and, and surrounding Jerusalem, all the prophets and the priests were like, you know, in two years' time, God will swoop down and destroy our enemies. And Jeremiah is going, No. That's not the Lord. You're prophesying, but the Lord's, those aren't the Lord's words. You're running around prophesying, but He didn't tell you to go anywhere. The word of the Lord actually is the exact opposite. Surrender to Babylon. Go with them and make a life for yourself there because you're going to be there for a little while. Whereas all the priests and the prophets were saying, no, we're going to hold our ground and in two years' time God will sweep down and destroy our enemies. 
So he was uh, pretty much an odd man out, Jeremiah at the time. He wasn't saying what everybody wanted to hear, and he was in the vast minority regarding what the majority were saying God was saying. And it's always been like that, and it's always going to be like that. That's what makes us really, really, really dangerously tricky. We have to make sure we're actually heeding and hearing and doing what the Lord is saying. Almost every example in the scriptures, from Genesis to Revelation, it's a minority remnant that does that. All the rest of them, the vast majority, are doing the exact opposite. He went to the temple and he spoke with the word of the Lord. You've got to remember, what did he tell Jeremiah? Don't be afraid of their faces. I'm sending you to a really hard people. Don't be afraid of their faces. Speak what I'm going to have you speak. And he did. He's in the temple and he speaks the word of the Lord. And the priests, the prophets, and the people all rushed him to kill him. Because of what you just said, we're going to kill you. And they rushed him. Eventually let him go, but then of course he was imprisoned. He was very badly treated. And when, when Babylon actually did take it, those that were left, God left a remnant in Jerusalem because he always does, unto himself. And then they decided, we're going to leave Jerusalem and we're going to go to Egypt so we don't die here. And it actually jumped onto the, the Pharaoh and even Egypt got spanked and cursed because of these people that didn't stay in Jerusalem. He was telling the people to prepare themselves to be ready to worship God once the temple was rebuilt. And he accused them of doing the very things their ancestors had done before the exile, which was what? Disobedience. They're not keeping the commandments. They're doing their own thing. And then that's why God destroyed the, the first temple. Every good Jew knows that the first temple was destroyed in the ninth of Av as punishment. They don't quite want to say that, even though the second temple was also destroyed in the ninth of Av. So they've made excuses for it. And they've twisted it. Because what did they do 40 years prior to the second temple? They killed Messiah. He was concerned about social justice for widows, orphans, and foreigners. But as the people endured opposition from the non-Jewish inhabitants of Judea, Zechariah reassured them of God's abiding comfort and care. God would continue His covenant with Israel. Messianic hope was rekindled during Zechariah's ministry, and the book ends with the promise that the Lord would establish His rule over all the earth. Like Ezekiel, Zechariah was of priestly extraction. He describes himself as the son of Barakiah and the son of Iddo. Ido is mentioned in the listing of priests and Levites in Nehemiah's list in Nehemiah 12.4 and Zechariah himself is listed along with Ido as priests, heads of fathers' houses in Nehemiah 12.16. So we know Zechariah came from a Levitical priestly background which is very significant. You always have to have a Levitical priest functioning as a prophet in a lot of ways. John the Baptist was a Levitical priest. Most people don't know that which is very important because he, the Levitical priest, announces the Lamb. He's the one that sets everything up with the Lamb when it comes to the the atonement sacrifices up to that point. The fact that Zechariah was from a Levitical priestly background and listed with Iddo, his grandfather, in Nehemiah's listing, gives a lot of weight to this prophet. Zechariah was probably born during the captivity, but was brought back early to the land. His prophetic career began in the second year of Darius, king of Persia, about 16 years after the return of the first company from their Babylonian exile. This is about 900 plus years after 
the wilderness extraction, the exodus from Egypt, and the Canaan campaign with Joshua. So 900 years has passed. And it's interesting because he's talking about their forefathers and ancestors, and he's not, he's not talking about the sons of promise that left Egypt that died in the desert, or the sons of the sons of promise that Joshua led into the land. He's actually talking about four, five, six hundred years after that, all the stuff that went down that caused the Babylonian exile. So we've got, from the book of Judges up to Zechariah, 900 years of them not doing right. I always bring that up in my conversations with my critics because they're always saying stuff like, the Jews that are in Israel in the land right now aren't the same Israel in the Bible. It's funny that they say that because the vast majority of Christianity actually believes that, but their enemies don't. (laughs) That's why their enemies want them off the land and dead. They know they're the same Israel of the Old Testament. Because of Israel's lack of accepting Messiah, and because Israel isn't in line with that, they can't be blessed or they're not the Israel of the Old Testament. And then I remind them that from Judges all the way to Malachi, the vast majority of the Old Testament is all about Israel not being in alignment with the Lord at all, in any way, shape, or form. Israel in disobedience, not keeping the commandments. And we know, based on the Old Testament text, that God never forsake them, never abandoned them, never took His blessing off of them. Well, He had to spank them, of course. But He never took His covenant from them. Like Paul says in Romans 11. God didn't reject them and do away with them and sever them to the extent that He no longer has covenant with them. In Matthew, Jesus is quoted as stating that Zechariah, son of Barakiah, was killed between the altar and the temple. And a similar quotation is also found in Luke. You're not killed between the altar and the temple if you're on everyone's good side. He was a martyr. This guy was upsetting people (laughs) with what he was saying. In Lenny's intro to Zechariah, he said, future blessing is contingent upon present obedience. Israel was returning to the land after 70 years of Babylonian exile. The rebuilding of the temple was foremost in their minds. But their future, temple or no temple, as always, would be contingent on their obedience. Their decisions, their actions, obedience or disobedience, would determine if that future was a future of blessing or curses. Yes, they had to reestablish the temple. Without the temple, they pretty much don't have an identity But then also on the spiritual side, there had to be a temple to take care of the covenant. But as many of us know, with or without the temple, it was always our heart that he was interested in. Above the blood of bulls and goats. And that's what Zechariah is stressing in the first first half of the book. It's a do-over. It literally is a do-over. They're coming back to the land. It's pretty messed up. They get to start over. They have the opportunity where we can do this thing right. We know where we've messed up. We don't want to do that again. We know God has punished us because He destroyed the temple, the first one. Let's do this thing right. Except the leadership of Israel, what did they do in Babylon to ensure that they wouldn't mess up again? 
and have this happen to them again? Anybody know? The Babylonian Talmud. They created Talmud. Everybody know what Talmud is? Talmud is the fence that they built around the Torah to make sure they would never break Torah again. They built this safety net or safeguard fence around the Torah so that if you don't break the Talmud, then you won't be breaking the Torah. Only problem with that is they added to the Torah by doing that. And by adding to the Torah, they broke Torah. Because you can't do that. To the extent that by the time Jesus shows up on the scene, what they're actually teaching and observing and basing everything on is Talmud, not Torah. Remember in Mark, I think, 7 or 8, Jesus says, your traditions, the traditions of men, by keeping those traditions that you've established, this Talmud, you actually make the Torah null and void. Again, we have been taught in many areas of Christianity that the reason why Jesus was so upset with the Pharisees was because they observed the law. That's not true. <laughs> and then Jesus defends the law in that same discourse. The foundational teaching of Jesus, he's always deferring to the authority of Moses. It's in your Gospels, you can check it out for yourself. So they have a do-over opportunity. And once again, Adonai establishes his desire for his people. What is that desire? Adonai was extremely angry with your ancestors. Therefore, tell him that Adonai says this, Return to me, says Adonai, and I will return to you. That's Zechariah 1, verses 2 and 3. So once again, he's establishing, he's setting the foundation, the same foundation from the garden. Lenny made this our theme for 2014. Return to me, and I will return to you. And we see the same promise in James 4, verse 8. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. It's the same thing. The part that really bothers us, or the part that we have a problem or issue with, we have to be proactive in the work, yeah, works, of drawing near to Him. Or returning to Him. We have to access Him. And then He will return to us. He will draw near to us. We don't like that. I'm going to spend a couple seconds here and talk about cycles. We busy ourselves with life. Family, jobs, recreation. There's nothing wrong with that, of course. But we get to the point where we just go and go and go. We get busy with the things of life. And our prayer life starts to slack off. Our reading life starts to slack off. Our fellowship starts to slack off. And then stuff starts happening. And we get to a point where we go, Oh, where are you, Lord? Is this not what we do? We all do it. Where are you, Lord? And he's going, The same place I was, I haven't moved. And we don't like that. We cycle out, right? We do our little cycles. Everybody has cycles. And we all have different types of cycles. They manifest in various ways. I have watched Christians for 30 years. They're not equipped to navigate cycles. And here's why. As they're cycling out, they're creating a ripple effect. Throw a rock in the pond. 
and it expands and it goes all around them. At some point, hopefully, and this is where the difficulty comes in, they have to repent and they have to start sowing good seed in order to reap fruit. What happens is, because of this ripple effect in the cycle, here comes a ripple effect from what they did. It usually takes them off guard and they get broadsided. It's discouraging. They lose hope. They lose faith. They get discouraged. And they end up going back into the cycle. But it was a a result of what they did over here. And so now it's like a perpetual thing. And the hardest thing to do is to start sowing good seed and maintain it, even though these waves of the ripples keep knocking you down. You still got to maintain. You still got to stay strong. You still got to keep going, right? Eventually, what happens, those ripples disappear, right? Because if you're not causing the ripples anymore by sowing good seed, you start eventually reaping good fruit if you can withstand the ripple effect. Eventually, it gets clear. And all of a sudden, you're like, oh, I made it. That could take months. It usually takes years. Between 1983 and 1986, the amount of sin that I did (laughs) in those three years took 12 to 15 years for me to fix. Not including all the residual stuff that had to be piled up because of the crap that I was doing between 86 and those other whatever. Do you see what I'm saying? And so people go, Christianity doesn't work. This doesn't work. They get bummed out. They lose hope. They lose faith. And they check out. That's why it says, after doing everything we possibly can do, what does he say? Stand firm. It gets in the way, this whole concept of draw near to God and He'll draw near to you. Because what happens is we find ourselves out here flapping in the wind going, Oh, where are you, God? You've abandoned me. I don't hear you. I don't feel you. I don't... You're not answering my prayers. We've all been there. And the hardest thing to do when you're in that situation is what? Draw near to Him. Just stop. Everything you're doing, stop it. And just go, I'm done. Like the prodigal son. And repents. And it's really, it's a basic fundamental responsibility. Sowing into the Lord. It's on us. It's always on us. Remember when he walked through the bulls with Abraham? He put Abraham to sleep first. They made a covenant. Hey, they're sitting around drinking a beer around the campfire. And they come up with this idea. I'm sorry, maybe they're drinking wine. They're sitting around having a drink around the campfire. And they go, hey, how about let's walk through some slaughtered bulls. We'll make a covenant with each other. I will be your God and you will be my people and I'll make you a nation. Abraham's, all right. So he's ready to go and... He falls asleep. God walks through the bulls all by himself. Because, as he tells them, if we had done it together, I would have had to have killed you at the end of that bull line. Because there's no way you're going to be able to keep this. You can, but you're just not going to. But I've made a covenant unto myself. He swears on himself, doesn't he? Because he's faithful and true. He's not going to break the covenant. Simply put, Zechariah is a journal of 22 prophetic visions and encounters. Oracles. Alright, let's go to Zechariah, chapter 1. We're going to read the first oracle. It's a whole six verses long. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, he's the king of Persia, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, 
the son of Barakiah, son of Iddo, saying, Adonai was extremely angry with your ancestors. Therefore, tell them that Adonai, Savaot, or the Lord of hosts, host of armies, says this, Return to me, and I will return to you. Don't be like your ancestors, to whom the former prophets cried out. Adonai says to turn back now from your evil ways and deeds. But they didn't listen or pay attention to me. Your ancestors, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, the other word for that is commandments or Torah, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtook your ancestors, didn't they? Then they turned and said, Adonai has dealt with us according to our ways and deeds, just as he intended to do. He was extremely angry with their ancestors for not keeping the covenant that they swore to Moses and that they swore to Joshua that they would keep. And who did they swear with? Who was the witness of that swearing on both occasions? Heaven and earth. They swore by heaven and earth that they would keep the writings of Moses, the teaching of Moses, the Torah of Moses. And then when Joshua, he separates the people into two sections, on one mountain to represent blessing, and the other mountain to represent cursing, because the Torah is for both what? Blessing and cursing. And had them swear, look, choose you this day who you're going to serve. Are you going to do this thing? Because if you don't, this is what's going to happen. In fact, they didn't even say, if you break these commandments, these are the horrible things that are going to happen to you. The land's going to throw you up, your enemies are going to overrun you. You're going to have plague. You're not going to live your full-term life. You'll have disease. You'll have poverty. You'll have miscarriages. You'll be sterile. It says all that in here. That's what's going to happen to you. Not if, it says, but when you don't keep my commandments. God knew they weren't going to obey Him because He knows this. And then the blessings. But if you do keep my word, my statutes, my mitzvahs, my commandments, what's going to happen? You're going to have a great life. You and your children. Forever. If you do keep his commandments, you will have an amazing life. You'll live your full term. You won't have poverty. You won't be sterile. You won't have disease. It says that. You and your children forever. But they didn't do that. They didn't listen or pay attention to me. So turn back now from your evil ways and deeds. My words and my statutes, my Torah, my word, which I commanded my servants the prophets, overtook your ancestors, outlasted your ancestors. They're all dead. I'm still here. So return to me and I'll return to you. Let's do this thing right from here on out. We have a do-over. This has always been his heart for us. It's his heart for us today. I mean, that's why He sent His Son. He sent His Son to prove that a human being could actually obey the Father, walk in obedience, not sin, and then He took on the sin of the world on our behalf. And so now that we receive that death on the cross in our stead, and we receive the blood that washes us, we're created for good works. And we obey His commandments. Why? Because we love Him. Not for salvation, but because we're saved. 
and return to Him, and He'll return to us. 